0: Hey, how are you doing, Podcats? Adam Buxton here. Welcome to the second of two live episodes recorded at the London Podcast Festival in September 2018. The previous one was with American comedian, now living in the UK, Sarah Barron. And today's episode, number 125, is with George Mpanga, who goes by the stage name George the Poet. George Vax. George, aged 29 as I speak, is a London-born spoken word performer of Ugandan heritage. His innovative brand of musical poetry has won him both critical acclaim as a recording artist and a social commentator. The first time many people saw George was when he read a love poem that was played at the top of the official TV coverage of The Wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Prince Harry is a big supporter of a charity that is particularly important to George, apparently. The poem began, Loving is lovely, like licking a lolly, then poking and stoking a fire. Oh no, sorry, that's one of my poems. George's poem was called The Beauty of Union. Link in the description. Uh, Here's a quote from the website of his former school, Queen Elizabeth's, who have written proudly of their former pupil, George's growing national profile as a poet rests in large part on his work commenting on major issues of the day. Excuse me, I'm trying to do a podcast. Can you keep that down a tiny bit? Thanks. Yeah, all right. Well, look, we'll talk later on, shall we? Some of these birds. I don't know. George's growing national profile as a poet rests in large part on his work commenting on major issues of the day. In 2017, he released a video showing himself reading a poem on hate crime. Link in the description of podcast. The video was produced in collaboration with the Equality and Human Rights Commission to coincide with the anniversary of the murder of MP Joe Cox. That from the website of George's former school. Despite all this upstanding behaviour and royal friendliness, George is wary of being co-opted by the British establishment and turned down an MBE in 2019, citing, says Wikipedia, the British Empire's treatment of his ancestral home, Uganda. His multi-award-winning podcast, entitled Have You Heard George's Podcast, is a series of imaginatively produced audio collages that variously feature interview clips... Atmospheric field recordings, little sketches and music all tied together with George's thoughts and commentary in spoken verse, often providing a powerful, seldom-heard perspective on the experience of being black in Britain. Dr A. Buckles calls it a marriage of art and journalism. Brilliant. My conversation with George was recorded in the large auditorium at King's Place in the King's Cross area of London on a warm tail end of the summer night in early September 2019 as part of the London Podcast Festival. But if you, like me, are not a massive fan of live podcast episodes, especially when the podcast is usually recorded without an audience, so, you know, Richard Herring, he always does his show in front of a live audience and it's brilliant because of it. But for someone like me... Suddenly having a conversation in front of a live audience requires quite an unnatural change of gear that sometimes makes the conversations a bit less easygoing, I think. I don't know. Anyway, I say all that only because I think this one is a good exception. And as you will hear, George is one of the most relaxed and relaxing people to talk to and listen to, even in front of a live audience. He seems enviably comfortable in his own skin and we had a great conversation which began with me coming out on stage and welcoming the audience and George by playing a video of me asking Rosie if she wants to go for a walk. Back in the old days when Rosie would actually come for a walk with me today she just shook her head and stayed home. She likes going for walks in the evenings now but uh, she's not so keen on the afternoon walks anymore. I don't know. But the video I played to George and the audience at King's Place was a montage of me asking Rosie if she wants to go for a walk that I made back when Rosie was about four, I suppose. And in those days, she would lift off vertically into the air at the mere mention of a walk, like a harrier jump jet. Or a Harrier jump jet. <laughs> Now, I wanted to say that the podcast will be taking a short break for a couple of weeks and I'll be back at the end to explain a little bit more. But right now, with George the Poet, here we go. Just for anyone, like for Hardcore Podcats, that is my dog, Rosie George, with whom I go on long walks in the countryside. Mm. Do you have a dog?
2: I don't have a dog, no.
0: Have you ever had a pet?
2: Nope. Do you wish you did? No. No. I feel like I'm letting you down in this conversation. Not at all.
0: You know, I was like you once. (laughs) I was petless for many years. And Even accused of being a dog Nazi. Wow. Yeah,
2: what changed?
0: Well, I had children and then my middle son Just went on and on and on about can we get a dog? Can we get a dog? Please? Can we get a dog? Can we get a dog and we were having some struggles with the boy? And my wife said, maybe a dog might be quite good. Like, he'll take care of the dog and it'll he'll learn some responsibility and it'll bring out a softer side of him. And also, we will have done him a massive favor, so we'll have one over on him. Uh. <laughs> so anytime he's uncooperative, we can say, we got you the dog! Mm, mm. And if he doesn't do what we say, we'll threaten to hurt the dog. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that story makes me feel so guilty because... The family did have two budgies that I just refused to acknowledge.
0: <laughs> so there was no budgie bonding at
2: all? No. So for years, I resentfully had to, like, feed and clean after the budgies. And then one day, one of the budgies passed away. Oh. I still, after those years, felt nothing. <laughs>
0: The end. I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. You don't necessarily have that sort of relationship that other people do with their pets. Anyway, Rosie came along as a three-week-old puppy, Whippet Poodle Cross, and she was a pain in the rectum. But then the thing that changed was the podcast i sort of started with this exact recorder this is my backup recorder i would start going out on walks with rosie and making voice notes on this thing and just sort of using it as a therapy ramble you know just talk about what i was doing maybe work out ideas that kind of thing and it was so enjoyable that i thought well maybe i can turn this into some sort of podcast you know these rambles that i have with rosie
2: so this was a completely personal thing at first it wasn't for an audience
0: Yeah, exactly. Crazy. But there were elements that I thought, actually, that might be okay. Some of this I could share, I could put it out. Mm. And it does feel personal in that way. Did you ever do things like that? Where do the field recordings in your podcast come from, for example?
2: So I felt like there was so much inspiration from my lived experience that fed into my work. And it's exactly the same. It started as completely personal. I wanted to capture the magic of what I was witnessing on a daily basis, just that I could relive these moments. And eventually, I felt like they would give more context because I would have these recordings on my phone and then I'd be driving, listening to a song and it would make me think about the conversation that we'd have. And a lot of these conversations are things that don't reach the mainstream or are not known about my part of the world. So I just thought, if you could marry that quality of conversation with the songs that people might perhaps recognise give a lot more context to what these people are going through
0: Mm. who for example recorded your mum talking to your nephew in
2: your popcorn episode i did thanks for asking and and noticing that i really my nephews are my muse and just they're so weird you know kids are so weird (laughs) And um, one thing that's always fascinated me is how children have the ability to cry as if the world is coming to an end over really trivial stuff. Yes. It says a lot to me about the human condition and how we learn to self-regulate. You know, I, I heard my nephew crying over Lego and I heard what my mom was saying to him.
0: Like one of his constructions had disintegrated.
2: Yeah. And he was so frustrated. And I remember that. I'm not that far removed from that experience. And obviously, my mom was the one who had to talk me through those um, frustrations. And listening to her talking my nephew through, you know, 20 years removed for me, I felt like I had to capture that. And I did it personally. And eventually, the podcast occurred to me. See, my little nephew's stressing, bless him, because his Lego fell apart. But from the way my mom handles it, you can tell she got hella heart. First, she recognizes why my little guy is stressing. Then she tries to make him see the life lesson. If you do something properly, it will not break. If you do it in a hurry, talking non-stop, looking at Nicolas's yeah, moving all over the place, you will not build it firmly, and it will break. Okay. So what you need to do is challenge yourself to build it firmly, so it doesn't break. Okay. That's my mom
0: and it was so sweet and nice the way she said it I just thought wow that is good going yeah man how old was your nephew at the time?
2: about 7 years old at, right. the, at that time yeah so it's funny because I try to you know like show my mum appreciation I talk to her about how amazing um, her parenting has been and she has this weird thing I don't know if it's a Ugandan thing or if it's an overly Christian thing but she just feels like praise is bad She's like, has to resist the praise but um, by capturing that and putting it in context you couldn't run you know I'd be able to say Adam Buxton said that you're a good parent
0: so anyway Rosie yeah was a, was a total game changer and now I record my podcast intros and outros mm. and it's very therapeutic it's nice to be out there have you ever lived in the country?
2: Um, I've spent a lot of time in Uganda, rural Uganda, but even urban Uganda has a lot of green spaces. Right. So when I'm out there, that is my country experience. And I guess being at university as well was not the most urban experience. There's a change of pace for me.
0: Yeah. In
2: Cambridge? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you're not too far from us out in East Anglia. Right. I try to avoid Cambridge now because I've had so many fights with members of staff at the station. <laughs>
2: Is that a running theme in your life or is it
0: Cambridge Station? There's something about Cambridge. I mean, the main thing is that they've just decided that making the trains run on time isn't that important. So, <laughs> literally, half the time the train will pull in and, and you'll miss the connection. So, you have to hang around for an extra hour. I mean, literally, half Heart the time. Breaking. But, you know, fuck me because I'm privileged and uh, who cares? So I take it out on the staff, which is uh, <laughs> who are just trying to do their jobs. <laughs> and then I had a row with the guy in W.H. Smith's because I wanted to buy some tobacco, but I couldn't remember the brand I wanted. And they wouldn't let me browse the tobacco. You're not allowed to see the
2: packs. Where they're sold, where they're stocked.
0: Yes, where they're stocked. Oh, so they, right. had, they go in a black cupboard. Yeah, You know, the logic being that if children can't see the packs, they won't think about it and then they won't smoke. Mm. Whatever, maybe that works. So I said, oh, yeah, I could have some tobacco, but I can't remember the brand. Can I just see? No. I was like, really? Mm. You won't let me see? No. <laughs> So I said, well, okay, Um, can I have some Marlboro lights? So they opened it up, and I was like. (laughs) (laughs) She gets out the Marlboro lights and puts them down, and I was like, oh, no, it's okay. I'm not going to have those. (laughs) Can I have some? But by then she was like, she, she knew what I was doing. (laughs) And then she stood in front of the cupboard so that I couldn't see while she was putting the Marlboro lights back. You can't see? No, you're not allowed to see. It was so insane. And then I tried some other tactic
2: and then she called the police. Escalated quick. I mean, I feel like you're not giving us the full information about this other (laughs) time. Oh, no, I
0: tell you what, I did is I got out my recorder.
2: Uh, ah, that's the problem.
0: I took it to an insane place and um, <laughs> I started recording because I thought, well, maybe this will be fun in the podcast. I don't know. And I was like, I'm here at W.H. Smith
2: <laughs>
0: at Cambridge and they won't let me see this. And so while she was doing it, she was like, Mike, call the police. <laughs> Call the police, there's a customer who's causing nuisance. Mm. And anyway, so the guy came out and he's like, no, it's okay, we don't need to call the police. But it's one of the many reasons why I I try and avoid Cambridge Station. (laughs) You haven't had anything negative happen, any serious misunderstanding so far from your work, have you?
2: I don't think so, man. Every now and then, if I make an appearance like, question time, what happens is that people that weren't interested in me before form really strong opinions about me, maybe from a moment or from a sentiment that I put out there, which I always have to ask myself, could you have represented yourself and your perspective better in that moment? But it's scary when I see verified people on Twitter, Mm -hmm. like talking passionately about George the Poet constantly coming out here and playing the race card in this stupid orange (laughs) tracksuit. I just got this tracksuit, right? But, yeah, you have to kind of have a level of Zen about things you can't control, innit?
0: You do, don't you? I've yet to achieve that. (laughs) (laughs) Overall, listening to your podcast, even just the way you speak, I'm impressed by the fact that you seem to have already achieved that level of Zen. You seem so sorted. Where does that come from? I mean, it made sense when I heard your mum speaking. I was like, ah, that's where that comes from. Mm. But... Is that the way your upbringing was, just sort of very calm and sensible?
2: Well, I appreciate you saying that because it was just this morning that one of my closest friends was telling me that she's only now realizing how unstable I am. (laughs) But I think I have been put in situations in which I am sharing space with people that I really disagree with or don't see eye to eye with. That was my childhood experience. So early on, that forces you to compromise and to listen a little bit. Obviously, also a lot of people in my house. And I'm kind of curious about people as well. So when it comes to public address, I try. I don't always do a great job of it, but I do try and consider that my perspective isn't... I don't have a monopoly on the truth.
0: That is a refreshing thing to hear. Who were the people you were disagreeing with when you were growing up?
2: So a lot of my neighbors, the children that I was growing up with, there was a lot of anger in the environment. And I, obviously being a child, this is the first reference that I have about the world beyond my house. So I just thought, this is what some people are like. Looking back now, I see conditions that those young people were dealing with. I haven't seen in the same measure kind of anywhere else the extent for example of fatherlessness or poverty crime unemployment it didn't occur to me that you know it's later on that we get the language for these things but growing up around it all you perceive is the behavior and well into my teens I was still associating the behavior with people around me and their individual choices I very much felt that (laughs) And it was
0: so strange to see a wider perspective. Now we get that a great deal, I think. People have grasped that in a lot of different areas. But yeah, growing up, that didn't occur to me at all. Yeah, man. It was all on an individual basis. And I still think that that's sometimes the case when I have my run-ins with people who are just trying to do their job. I'm engaging... Just on the basis of my personal peeve with them at that moment and not seeing the bigger picture Not thinking about the kind of day they've had and the kind of interactions they've had or Mm. whatever I mean, you know Sometimes I think I shouldn't have to think about that. I don't see why they can't just be more helpful. Mm. You know what I mean? But, (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I hear what you're
2: saying. So where was it that you were growing up? This is northwest London between Wembley and Neasden geographically the estate was quite secluded on one side we had a road called the A406 which is a big road like goes from west to east London and on the other side there was a big industrial park so a geographically removed location largely residential not many access points so it could at times feel like a hotbed of tensions among young people But growing up, I realized that there were many different experiences of that location. It's just that that was the time that I was born in. And it's it's even changed now.
0: So what would you have been doing on a balmy Friday night as a young man on that estate?
2: As a young man, so not as a child, in my teens, I would be trying to not be on the estate. I would be out, but I'd be somewhere else. Because unfortunately, by that time, there was a... A heavy gang culture that was emerging among my peers and it really set in in the local schools. So if you've gone to a school in the area and everyone knows the bus that you take to go home and everyone went to similar primary schools, then there's even more pressure on you to represent yourself as someone from this area Someone who cannot get robbed. Everyone was getting robbed back in the day. Someone who won't fall victim to violence. Or someone who won't just get bullied. And a lot of the guys internalised that. Now what I didn't realise is that some of my other neighbouring estates had a similar culture but a little more order. They had hierarchy. My estate was not known for order or hierarchy. So um, a lot of the behaviours that these guys were taking on, they would direct it just in a scattergun way like to each other towards me there was a spate of burglaries on the estate for a long time there were robberies of older people so my estate was like the pariah estate to this day Mm -hmm. in our part of northwest london and for that reason on a balmy friday night i'd be anywhere the fuck else man (laughs) i'm trying to be there
0: what form did the gangs take like what what did they stand for if they stood for anything
2: bless them they stood for their estate because that is all they knew about themselves no one ever talked to them about who they were before it was a largely immigrant community growing up it was predominantly Jamaican mm-hmm. you've got like third, fourth generation Jamaican immigrant kids who are significantly removed from the experience of the homeland and ultimately have had parents that have grown up you know, under the time no Blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Yes. They've grown up at odds with the state. So there's a statelessness among a lot of these young people. And all they know for sure is that the council placed my family here. That's what their identity was. Uh
0: huh. And there would have been people, probably my mum would have been one of them, who would read in the Daily Mail that the way. That maybe the British gangs were inspired was via hip hop that mm. drifted over from West Coast America. Mm. You know what I mean? Was that a big inspiration, or was yeah. it a factor?
2: Yeah. So I felt like I suspected that for a lot of my childhood. But remember, you remember the factors that I told you about: the fatherlessness, crime, poverty, unemployment. I didn't relate to that in my home, so I. It took me a long time to understand. The presence of these factors within the household, which I I go on to talk about in episode two, Mm -hmm. after giving you the scenario with my mom, talking to my nephew, I go on to talk about next door, my friend, and the lack of structure in my friend's life. Anyway, for the majority of my early life, I didn't identify with that. But what I started seeing from the age of 12 onwards was a lot of my friends withdrawing into themselves and, Shedding parts of their personality and their character that used to be loving and used to be vulnerable. Everyone started presenting themselves a lot more as the rappers that we listen to presented themselves. So I made the same mistake that you say uh, readers like your mom mm-hmm. made. I confused correlation with causality. Mm-hmm. I hear all of that stuff going on in the rap music. I hear what these rappers are saying and I see what you kids are doing, and you kids must be doing it because of the rappers. But the correlation might have more to do with the conditions that these guys are actually coming from, and their identification with the rap might be, again, going back to the whole point of belonging. They don't belong necessarily in this country. They don't feel that same identification with where their parents are from. There's a generational gap with their parents. You know, their parents are in a predominantly working class situation there are constraints on their time on their resources their parents have the best of intentions but might not have all of the tools that they would like to give to their child to help them navigate what is quite a hostile environment Mm -hmm. so in the home there's this breakdown of communication and ultimately the story that these rappers have been painting starts to make a lot more sense by the time you're thirteen.
0: Because you're getting a similar narrative, or you were, with drill music recently. Yeah. And the association with knife crime, etc. Yeah. And it's so tempting, isn't it, from an outside perspective to see those as being uh, so you know intrinsically linked. I saw a video of you talking to a rapping man from a rap gang. And he was wearing a mask. Yes, he was. <laughs> from 6'7". That's right. And uh, you were talking to LD. Uh-huh. Other members of Six, Seven Rap Gang include Monkey, <laughs> Dimsey, Liquez, ASAP, SJ, General LucasAid, <laughs> Yo 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 Ma, Fragrant P, Fidget Spinner. I'm making some of these up now. <laughs> but they're available if anyone wants them.
2: This guy's done his research. He's more clued up than me.
0: Derwood Fuzzy Felt. (laughs) And MC Nice Andrew. (laughs) But, yeah, you were talking a little bit about that, about the, you know, overwhelmingly negative associations that a lot of people have now with drill music. Mm. Because your background is music, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So what sort of stuff did you start making? Were you doing... Kind of genre music immediately
2: yeah I was I made grime when I first emerged as a rapper, yeah, well, I first wrote in a more u s style of rap, which is just stylistically different, but yeah, grime is a far star homegrown version of rap that is native to our accent, which is a big thing again about identity and belonging, so at fourteen years old, I started off with that, but I took an ideological stance quite early on, I felt like All of the examples of rappers that we grew up on spoke from an individualistic place and tried to use their art to boost themselves and create a sense of power and autonomy Mm -hmm. and independence of thought. But I just saw a contradiction in that because what happened was everyone started behaving the same and exhibiting the same sometimes self-destructive behaviors. So at 14 years old, I was really curious about how we could tweak the formula so that everything that we are could be expressed in the music. We're all someone's friend. And there is no violence, no machismo involved in that. We just chill with people. So how can we just be chilling with people in the music that doesn't involve any negative externalities? Or how can we be Siblings? How can we be family members? How can we be people that at some point went to Sunday school? Can we represent all of that in the music as well? And because I was so obsessed with that question how do you do all of that and still be cool and still be recognized as someone that is worth listening to? Mm-hmm. I went down a very different path in terms of the content that I was creating at an early age. So by the time I was 19 and I started at Cambridge and a friend of mine asked me to perform at a talent show that he was putting together. I already had content that was substantively different. But I also had some notes about how the difference can be further expressed. And the first of those notes was maybe I could just talk the lyrics as opposed to rapping them. Mm. Because the physical action of rapping is very intense, especially if you're on the stage, especially if you have been trained as a gram artist. It's a very visceral thing to do. You're projecting from your stomach. There's a lot of strain on sometimes your neck muscles and your vocal cords. Yeah. And that, informs the energy of the music a lot of the time.
0: It's sort of like someone's having a bit of a paddy a lot of the time, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I'm very angry and I'm talking like this. And yeah, a very, you know, yeah. especially
0: with Dizzy Rascal.
2: It's like, yeah. i not
1: kind of complaining a little bit like this.
2: Yeah. Really yeah, high. Yeah, 100%. And I always, I think, going to a school that was very middle class yeah. and in the suburbs at a time where grime wasn't what it is today. It wasn't the new rock and roll necessarily. It was to us, but it wasn't, nationally recognized as such yeah i always had the challenge of having to interpret the whole culture to people that found it funny mm-hmm. found it laughable these little details became very apparent to me as kind of barriers to communication
0: yes so what was the school that you were at a sort of nice grammar school
2: is in barnet i was in a school called queen elizabeth boys mm-hmm. i had no concept of what a grammar school was bless my parents neither did they they just knew that our local school wasn't really working out for my big brother at the time. Remember what I said to you about how gang culture and the negative side of estate culture can just flare up in the playground. My brother was educating the whole family on that firsthand through the challenges that he was going through. It was a crash course. And that shocked my parents into rethinking their approach to my education. So that's how we learned about league tables learned the process of applying to a grammar school and yeah bless my mom she actually had to personally teach me like some elements of maths like long edition in order to prepare me for the exam but, mm. yeah, clever person
0: and so your grammar school then presumably helped in the process of putting you on the path to Cambridge
2: yeah straight up it's funny because I was an inconsistent student so A lot of my teachers had serious reservations about my Cambridge application. Mm -hmm. But there was one teacher, my sociology teacher, the subject that I, to this day, have loved the most out of anything I've ever studied. And she was young. She was like in her early 20s at the time as well. And strongly felt like I had a chance to study um, particularly sociology. That's what I wanted to do at Cambridge. So she really encouraged me. Nisha Manahara and Maya, she's a... She, she doesn't live too far from here now, man. She's a very good person, it's been very crucial to my journey. But the whole school really trained me in a way that unfortunately a lot of my friends didn't have the opportunity to experience going to the schools that they did.
0: Did any of your friends end up going to the same schools as you?
2: The same school? The same. Yeah, the same grammar school? school. Not a single one. No. No. It was the concept didn't occur to a lot of like this is information that a lot of parents would jump at right mm-hmm. but it just didn't reach many of our parents social circles the, the idea that you can set your sights on a school outside of the community and transform the child's opportunities because of that
0: and was there any sort of stigma attached to that for you
2: i felt social pressures into like i used to when i was coming home from school like year 7 year 8 the early years of secondary school my school was very strict about uniform and I used to carry trainers with me that were appropriate for the estate and I would just change little aspects of my appearance like what I was wearing on my feet and like if I had a hat on and whatnot, I would just transform on the bus ride home, just, just like double agents.
0: Put your straw boater on upside down. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah just,
0: <laughs> just... That's what just... we used to do. <laughs> we were going into town with, <laughs> with the rough lads turn our collars up maybe loosen our ties a little bit Ooh. shows that you're down yeah, um and then were you on board with the whole cambridge thing you, did you get on with it immediately
2: I, I did i guess for a second generation immigrant as well you're aware of the move of the whole strategy Right, my parents came here, with, materially with with nothing. I don't like to say with nothing anymore as a blanket statement because they came with a sense of self, they came with a strong network back home, they came with a plan for their children, a plan for themselves, and that was transmitted to me somehow. So I felt like they were passing the pattern onto me in order to you know generate more opportunities down the line, and I did kind of see it as business, and I thought this is a good school. What I loved about Cambridge is that people are really insanely dedicated to what they're studying. And I felt like I was as well. So I didn't go necessarily for the most exciting social experience. And also, having grown up in the estate that I did and gone to the grammar school, I wasn't a stranger to being out of my depth socially. That wasn't the worst thing in the world. It was doable. So I went there. But to be honest with you, the reality of being there was tougher than I had mentally prepared myself for. Just the amount of work that was expected? Nah, the the amount of work I did expect, but I guess the loneliness. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was kind of lonely there.
0: Just not having a scene that you could feel Mm. part of.
2: Mm. I took that for granted back home.
0: I had the same sort of thing when I went to art school eventually because by then I was a bit older than everyone else because I fucked up all my exams, Uh. but it it is lonely. And so by the time I eventually got to art school, I was that much older than everyone else. And I just was into doing art. Mm. I wasn't there to have social fun. Mm. I'd made most of my good friends at school anyway, and I Mm. was still in touch with them. My friend Joe and Louie, and I was still hanging out with them when I went back to London. So I didn't really have that much interest in forming new social groups at college right. but it is lonely and I ended up renting everything from blockbusters that there was yep of an evening
2: yeah that's I became a recluse and that's how my poetry really right became a thing Yeah, yeah yeah and so you started
0: writing a lot at that point
2: I had already got into the habit of writing a lot because my journey my commute to school since obviously like 11 years old was an hour and a half On the bus, staring out the window. An hour and a half. Mm, That's what I'm saying. Like, it wouldn't have occurred to most parents to put their child through that kind of process. Yeah. But um, that gave me space to write lyrics. And I used to try and do it, just because I have a bit of an obsessive personality. I used to try and do it whether or not I was in the mood. So it developed as like a craft that I was obsessed with. And yeah, so by the time I was in Cambridge... That was my escape. Like, I, can, I don't need company for that.
0: Would you be okay to do a poem? Would you do a poem? Can you do one of your poems? <laughs> Will you do a poem? I could do a poem. Thanks. Yeah, that would be great.
2: Thank you. <clears throat> Impossible is a word people use to describe something they can't do. Sometimes they might want to be sadistic, tell you they're just being realistic, say it's near enough impossible, nigh impossible. They want you to think you'll lie in hospital for defying obstacles and trying not to fall, but their impossible isn't my impossible. There are no winners until someone's won it. You won't know what I'm capable of until I've done it. I could either sit here, patient and listen, wanting to make an incision, having to wait for permission, or I could make a decision. I could take a position. Impossible is the manifestation of your inhibition. So, fear of trying is fear of flying. Imagine your mind's racing and your heart isn't out to help. They're turning against you, and you're starting to doubt yourself. The nights get cold, the mornings are rough. Now you're worried about people calling your bluff, second-guessing your ability and all of your stuff, but no, you alone, more than enough. This is the truth I saw before I went to sleep. I knew my time would come eventually, so I celebrate every test ever sent to me because I feel like what's about to be, probably meant to be. It's remarkable to try, but I can't afford to die knowing my ambition didn't kill me. Forget the voice of reason. Listen to the real me. No guts, no glory. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Ah.
0: That was very good. That was great, man. Thank you. I love your delivery. I love the delivery and the tone you have in the podcast and you have conversations with yourself the podcast is beautifully produced who produces
2: it the podcast is produced by my main collaborator his name is ben brick he's right there he's amazing ben after like a year and a half of listening to this podcast i still walk into the studio every day and i just see him sitting there at the laptop and it's like a dopamine boost I'm like yes Ben Brick's still alive (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I really appreciate him so Ben Brick is classically trained right he knows music in a way that most people don't for for two reasons first of all he loves it and when he loves things he loves it like me like obsessive weird chill out love yeah but then he's also literally a scientist did you study physics sound physics yeah yeah like he actually knows the physics of vibrations and stuff and he knows a lot about computers so he can do things with sound that the average person can't do and that has been crucial to the podcast it just wouldn't exist in the same way without that guy right there do
0: you use the loops on logic pro (laughs) you should they're good they're very good um, I got you a present I got you a couple of presents uh, one of them is a book that I like or at least I like bits of it and I thought you might like it and the other one I'm not very familiar with but I thought that might make me look good if I give that to him uh. it is uh, poems by a poet he's called William Blake Get in. and these are all selected by Patti Smith the musician so I mean I don't know what, how that would affect your enjoyment of the William Blake. <laughs> Just imagining Patty sort of nodding <laughs> and being blissful. Do you like William Blake?
2: Thank. You. I actually really appreciate it. I love William Blake. Thank you so much. Okay, Well, this. you
0: probably got those, but those ones were selected by Patty Smith. <laughs> so they'll probably be better than the other ones you've mm-hmm. got. And how do you feel about Bukowski?
2: Bukowski, no problem with Bukowski
0: at all. Have you got Bukowski already? I Oh, good. Well, this is supposedly the the best anthology of his. It contains my favorite poem called The Shoelace. Have you ever come across The Shoelace before? Oh, it's a mm. peach. Can I read a tiny bit of it? Please do. I won't read the whole thing. But I thought these were good, and I thought I'd be quite... Because you talk about cross-pollination and the... The value of being open to ideas from unexpected places and sources. And I think that is a a very good thing to be into. And I thought that there was something that was similar about Bukowski's aesthetic working class Los Angeles, though, Mm. in the 40s, 50s and beyond. And just the griminess of some of the things that he's dealing with reminded me a little bit of some of the subjects that you talk about i'll resist the temptation to read it out in a charles Bukowski voice but he was a a strange guy he drank a great deal was german american teased mercilessly for having a german accent as a boy growing up in los angeles his father was Fairly abusive and beat him a great deal. He had terrible acne growing up, and all these things combined to make him furious and express his pain in in very direct and quite shocking ways in his poetry a lot of the time, although this I don't think is that shocking, but we'll see. The shoelace, a woman, a tire that's flat, a disease, a desire. Fears in front of you, fears that hold so still you can study them, like pieces on a chessboard. It's not the large things that send a man to the madhouse. Death he's ready for, or murder, incest, robbery, fire, flood. No, it's the continuing series of small tragedies that send a man to the madhouse. Not the death of his love, but a shoelace that snaps with no time left. The dread of life is that swarm of trivialities that can kill quicker than cancer and which are always there. License plates, or taxes, or expired driver's license, or hiring, or firing, doing it, or having it done to you, or constipation, speeding tickets, rickets, or crickets, or mice, or termites, or roaches, or flies, Or a broken hook on a screen. Or out of gas. Or too much gas. The sink's stopped up. The landlord's drunk. The president doesn't care. And the governor's crazy. Light switch broken. Mattress like a porcupine. $105 for a tune-up carburetor, and fuel pump at Sears Roebuck. And the phone bill's up. And the market's down. And the toilet chain is broken. And the light has burned out. The hall light. The front light. The back light. The inner light. It's darker than hell and twice as expensive. Then there's always crabs and ingrown toenails and people who insist they're your friends. There's always that and worse. Leaky faucet, Christ and Christmas, blue salami, nine-day rains, 50-cent avocados and purple liverwurst or making it as a waitress at Norm's on the split shift or as an emptier of bedpans or as a car wash, or a busboy, or a stealer of old ladies' purses, leaving them screaming on the sidewalks with broken arms at the age of 80. Suddenly, two red lights... It's almost finished. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I may as well read the whole thing. Suddenly, two red lights in your rearview mirror, and blood in your underwear, toothache, and $979 for a bridge, $300 for a gold tooth, and China and Russia and America and long hair and short hair and no hair and beards and no faces and plenty of zigzag but no pot, except maybe one to piss in and the other one around your gut. With each broken shoelace, out of 100 broken shoelaces, one man, one woman, one thing enters a madhouse. So be careful when you bend over. That's the shoelace
2: by Charles you so much that just gave me anxiety man that was so stressed so when I was listening to that I was wondering first of all how did he know (laughs) secondly is it just me like is it just us are we a type of person that gets stressed out by the everything of everything like that's how I feel It's too much information. There's too much to get irritated at. There's too much that I'm channeling constantly. Sometimes when you're talking, I just close my eyes because I can't. There's too many shoelaces in the room right now. But I I don't know if that's just me and people like Charles, just doomed to just overthink everything for the rest of our lives. Are you? You feel you're an overthinker? Do you? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Have you always been like that, or has it got worse? How old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? Twenty-eight. Right. Oh, Mm. you're old. <laughs> 28, yeah, like you're used over, to be, man. you're over the 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 hump the twenty seven year old scary hump when people either stick with it or check out
2: yeah yeah i mean the the podcast came when i was twenty seven ah, so before the podcast, people were used to receiving my words in two to six minute bursts, and that was appropriate. For my journey, there were a few transformations that happened. Obviously, I was a rapper. Then I started putting little, like, three-minute poems on YouTube, and then I met uh, a good friend of mine who I hope made it tonight. His name's Rob Ryan. There he is, Rob's great guy. He's a a very talented director, and he spotted me before a lot of people did, just doing like on some underground show. And he was like, you know, y- you should do stuff to camera. And that was a turning point. We put together a short film called My City, a poem about London. And that was pretty much the format for the next few years. People wanted what Rob kind of initiated. George in front of a camera saying some words. But there was all that, like the shoelace of things was always on my mind. And I didn't know how to explain everything that I saw until as, as I was telling you before, I started paying a bit more attention to stand up comedy. And to podcasts And realising that long form Can really Invite an audience that is prepared To pay a lot more attention Mm. So that allows us to get into the Minutia of day to day life And it helped me deal with a lot of my Stresses that I couldn't communicate before
0: I haven't really Heard anything like that before I I couldn't think of too many Other things like that Are you aware of similar things? Were you influenced by Other types of shows, either radio shows or films or TV shows?
2: Going back to your point, Adam, about cross-pollination. I was influenced very much by Disney. So I grew up around the Disney Renaissance era when, you know, I think Beauty and the Beast was the first animated film to win the best animated Oscar. That was my childhood. Lion King, you know, Aladdin. And that, I felt like there's something about that, especially in the way that they use music. That had been on my mind for about three years in the run up to creating the podcast. Huh,
0: that's interesting.
2: And like I said, cross pollinating the relationship with music and fantasy in Disney movies with my addiction for current affairs and sociology. Like, how can you make sociology feel as fantastical as a Disney movie? And that's how the podcast was basically born. Right. Oh, it's good, man. I really, I
0: mean, it's so, it it was one of those things, my, I don't know about you, but I'm so pathetic that uh, if, if people rave about things and say how good they are, I tend to go, nah, (laughs) fleabag, nah, (laughs) oh, but it's so good. Yeah. Nah. (laughs) So I read about your podcast. I was like, nah, (laughs) but it is, it's a treat. It's like a uh, wonderful, refreshing mind bath. <laughs> and so I thank you for it. George, thank you so much for coming along. Thank you. Adam. It's really a pleasure to meet you. It's a thrill to get to talk to you. And congratulations on the podcast. It's magnificent. Are you sort of making things up as you go along? I ask people this question a lot. Or are you, do you have some sort of plan for, for the next five years, how things are going to go?
2: Um, a bit of both. Yeah, yeah. The, the great leader, Stalin, said that the plan... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Always a good one for <laughs> inspirational uh, goals.
2: He said uh, that the plan is the plan, but then the way things happen is the actual... Yes. You get me? It's a different story altogether. Yes. Or
0: as John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Yeah. Um, All right. Sure. shit on my... No, listen, you love Stalin, that's fine. (laughs) Wait. This is an advert
1: for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members' area and spend in your shop. Continue. For Christ's sake, do you have another question?
0: Hey, welcome back, Podcats. George the Poet. I'm very grateful to him for coming along and making the time to talk to me at the London Podcast Festival. It was a real treat to meet him and to meet his producer, Ben Brick. There's a few George related links in the description of the podcast, including a link to his brilliant podcast and especially the popcorn episode that I mentioned and that I played a short clip of towards the beginning of our conversation. The one with his mum giving advice about uh, making Lego constructions. And there's a link to George reading a poem that he wrote since the lockdown began on uh, Radio 4's World at One. Uh, link to George's poem for Harry and Meghan. Link to the video montage of Rosie bouncing at the offer of a walk. Link to Adam Buxton's ramble book in audiobook form. If you haven't already had the pleasure of making it a part of your life. Now, I said at the beginning that the podcast is taking a break for a couple of weeks, which is just to give me a chance to get a few things together also my mum is not well it's not covid i'm happy to say but we did have to take her into hospital and she's being looked after by the wonderful people at the norfolk and norwich university hospital and i'm so grateful to them god they're nice and kind and um friendly and you know can't say enough good about them And even my mum, who can be quite grumpy and Daily Mail-ish at times, kept repeating how lucky she felt to uh, live in a country where the NHS exists and are there to take care of us so well. Anyway, uh, I'm not sure how long mum is going to be in hospital, but when she gets out, we'll be looking after her here at Castle Buckles, so that'll be taking up a bit more time but normal podcast service at least for a few episodes will resume in a couple of weeks until then take great care of yourselves and each other and um, if it's at all useful please bear in mind that I love you bye